This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out now. Bye. COP27 has got off to quite a start. Global temperatures keep rising. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. Yesterday, world leaders, including latecomer Rishi Sunak, began making big speeches on big stages. We can bequeath our children a greener planet and a more prosperous future. That's a legacy we could be proud of. But offstage, there are plenty of leaders on the ground who are truly, desperately trying to bring about change. People fighting for climate justice, putting their own lives on the line to save their communities, their lands and the environment. I don't believe it is justice to the young generation when our rivers and lakes are polluted. Is it justice for the world leaders to choose profits over lives? So today we're going to be turning our attention away from the main stage and onto the real climate leaders. From The Guardian, I'm Madeline Finlay and this is Science Weekly. Nina Lakani, you are a senior reporter for The Guardian and you're headed to COP27 very soon. But much like last year at COP26, your focus isn't going to be pointed towards the big promises made on the big stages, but on those fighting for climate justice. Now, for anyone who hasn't heard that phrase before, what is climate justice? So climate justice is both a term and a movement, I think, that recognises that the causes of the climate crisis, as well as the impacts of the climate crisis, are inextricably linked to deep-seated inequalities, which include racism, um, white supremacy and colonialism, economic inequalities, gender inequalities, as well as environmental inequalities. And that fundamentally what this means is that those communities and countries that are least responsible for the climate crisis are the ones that are most severely impacted by the climate crisis. Usually those people who are on the front line of the climate crisis, who are feeling its effects despite not really contributing to it in comparison to the UK, Europe, US, China. Those people go to COP27 to have their voices heard and to put their viewpoints across in how we deal with this in a fair and equitable way. But you've been hearing about how challenging it's been for them to attend this year, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and this isn't the first time, you know, there was a lot of issues at COP26 as well. But I mean, this year, um, COP 
is in Egypt. And so it's been sort of termed the African COP. But I've just spoke to so many community leaders and activists that have had such difficulties sort of getting there. First of all, the issue of getting accreditation, these sort of all important badges as they're called, which allow you to have sort of access to the areas where the negotiations are taking place. I spoke to Goodness Dixon, he's a 29-year-old climate activist from Abuja in Nigeria, where this year hundreds, if not thousands of people have died because of unprecedented flooding. And when I spoke to him, he said to me, you know, I have a voice, I want the privilege to be able to speak and to be heard. And he hadn't, when I spoke to him a month ago, hadn't been able to get a badge. The travel costs and the hotel costs are extortionate. And I just think we can't call it an African cop if folks from the African countries who are most impacted and also have some of the most important and sustainable solutions aren't there. And I know that in the last month since you spoke, Goodness Dixon has managed to get that accreditation. But of course, many others won't have been able to or haven't got the funding that they need to get there. But even if they do make it, they're going to have to be more careful in terms of the activism they do. Because recently you reported on a climate activist who was arrested in Egypt for walking and holding a sign. I mean, crazy, right? I mean, Ajit Rajagopal from South India, part of a movement called March for Our Planet, which was really created sort of in the run up to COP27 as a way of sort of bringing peaceful attention by walking, by marching across countries in Africa. And he was setting off from Cairo to walk to Sham el-Sheikh, you know, the resort city where the talks are going to be held, and was stopped at one of the many checkpoints that have been installed in these last few weeks and arrested. And not only was he arrested, he called a friend who happens to be an attorney, a lawyer, Makarios Lazi, to alert him to his arrest, who went to look for him. He was also arrested and the two of them were held incommunicado for more than 24 hours. I mean, it's just insane. And dozens of Egyptians have been arrested in the last week or so, human rights groups say. We should say that Egypt's interior ministry did not respond to calls and messages about these arrests, Reuters reported last week, adding that there was no immediate response to an emailed request for comment to the COP27 presidency. Despite the challenges and the significant risks, It is these voices of citizens, of community leaders, of indigenous leaders, which are really able to push the agenda at COPs. And particularly so this year with one of the big discussion points, loss and damage. And this is the idea that countries who have caused the climate crisis should be addressing the inherent injustice that you were talking about, the poorer countries who aren't historically big emitters are feeling those impacts. And so... We should be footing the bill. But that really hasn't come to fruition so far, has it? You know, the UN Climate Talks, in many ways, reflects the power imbalance that we see in every part of our life, right? You know, these polluting countries 
have wielded far more power than the smaller, more affected countries and have really just used a whole diverse range of sort of techniques and tactics to delay, to stall, to sort of quash these calls for loss and damage. But poorer countries negotiated in a block called the G77 plus China. And this year, the G77 presidency is held by Pakistan. And as we know, Pakistan has had the most horrendous, catastrophic climate year. And when I spoke to Sherry Rahman, the climate minister, who is sort of the principal climate negotiator, I mean, she said to me, this is our line in the sand, right? We will absolutely be seeing lots of talk about loss and damage. As Nina points out, it's vital that those on the front line who are feeling the impacts of the climate crisis and who are fighting for the environment, their homes, their communities, are heard at COP27. One of those Indigenous leaders hoping to make it this year is Nonle Bethuma. Nonle is an activist from the Zolobeni community in Pondoland on the Wild Coast in South Africa. Wild Coast is called Wild Coast because of a wild ocean and a very beautiful and in terms of biodiversity we are reaching like 250 species that you cannot find anywhere but only on the wild coast and wild coast is one of uh, the areas that we are still living in an indigenous way right now they keep saying that our community is the poor of the poorest but when we look at ourselves we are the rich of the richest because we have learned we're food and we're sharing everything. That is Wild Coast. The Wild Coast isn't just rich in terms of its biodiversity, it's also mineral rich. Which means that for decades, Nongley and her community have been fighting to stop their land being mined. And last year, the fossil fuel company Shell had their rights renewed to search for oil and gas offshore. Since we were born, we've never been told about oil and gas. The only thing that we know in the ocean is our ancestors that are lying there, the fish, the seafood that is there, and the water, you know, it's, it's our sacred place. Now, it was a shock for us to hear that there is also minerals in the ocean. They can destroy even the ocean. And that is why we stand up. We say no to oil and gas to our ocean. And mostly... It's about the lives of the people, it's about the way we live, it's about the future. Nongle may be directly fighting for her community's future, but that fight protects all of our futures. A recent report from the International Panel on Climate Change stated that there can be no new fossil fuel projects if we want to keep temperature rises below 1.5 degrees. Still, Nonle says that when these kinds of developments come, her people, who have been living and coexisting with the environment for generations, whose whole culture depends on it, are never listened to. We don't exist when it comes to development. There is no space for us to discuss. There is no space for us for, to having dialogues. Because um, if these big companies, they've already making a deal with the state, it's a done deal. When they're coming to us, they are just coming us to tell us that we are here to tell you that we are going to do a development here. And in order to be listened, 
we ended up in court and we don't want to go to court, but we, they left us with no choice because they are not here to listen to us. They are not here to talk. They are here to make profit. They are here to bulldoze us. And we refused to be pushed out. At the start of September this year, a South African court banned Shell from searching for fossil fuels along the wild coast. Shell is seeking leave to appeal on various grounds, but whatever happens next, it shows that for activists like Nondle, even in victory, the work is never complete. The fight in the wild coast is not over, and I doubt if it will be over soon, because Wild Coast, it's a hub of transnational cooperation. This is where they just sing it's a place for enriching themselves because it's not only the oil and gas that it's been pushed on the Wild Coast. There is also pushing off building the highway through our community where our livelihood is there. Nonle has helped save the community's lands and oceans for now. But there can be serious risks associated with climate activism. It's something I put to Nina Lakani. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know from um, Global Witness, an organisation that has been tracking violence and other forms of aggression against environmental and land rights defenders, that in the last decade, a defender has been murdered on average, every other day. I mean, that's, you know, more than 1,700 people, community leaders, grassroots leaders have been killed with almost complete impunity. You know, we can probably count the number of successful sort of prosecutions on one hand. And that is really just the tip of the iceberg. You know, we see increasingly activists and defenders facing bogus um, charges, being jailed um, as a way of like trying to neutralise them, to silence them. When we're going to COP and to see um, the conditions in which community leaders and activists operate I mean talk about courage right I mean for me courage isn't not being scared it's being scared and carrying on anyway and that's what these activists and defenders do and it's so important they have a place and a space to be heard at the negotiating tables. So bearing all that in mind Nina how are you feeling about heading to COP27 in the two weeks ahead? Oh, you know, it's very hard to be a climate reporter and stay positive. It really is. You know, it's like the doomsday beat, right? It feels sometimes. It's really the energy and the tenacity and the persistence of local movements and activists is what energises me. I mean, they cannot give up because if they give up, they'll no longer exist. And so I do not afford myself a luxury of, you know, being too downbeat or too hopeless because there are, you know, millions of people whose right to exist is under threat. And so I'm energised and motivated and in total awe of these folks because they are the ones that are the experts in their situations. And really, you know, I try really hard to sort of give people a platform and a voice because they're not going to get it at the UN climate talks, I'm afraid. 
Well, Nina, I'm really looking forward to hearing these voices and stories coming out through all your reporting over the next two weeks. And hopefully we'll be able to catch up with you at COP as well. But in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Melly. My thanks again to Nina Lakani and to Nonle Bethuma. You can find all of Nina's reporting, as well as the rest of our COP27 coverage, at theguardian.com. Now, I first read about Nonle's work, in her own words, on The Guardian's environmental newsletter, Down to Earth. And over COP27, Down to Earth is going to be publishing five times with exclusive pieces on the summit. So if you want to keep up to date and hear from incredible people like Nonle, subscribe to Down to Earth at theguardian.com forward slash down to earth. That's theguardian.com forward slash down to earth. And that's it for today. The producers were me, Madeline Finley and Ned Carter-Miles. The sound design was by Rudy Zagablo. And the executive producers were Max Anderson and Georgia Moody. Ian Sample will be back with you on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian.